couldn't turn in your Bibles, beloved, to um, Isaiah 42. And man, I just, I love, not that I didn't love the first half of Isaiah, but I really love the second half of it. Um, and especially just the beautiful pictures that it renders to us of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is one of them. I want us to look at Isaiah 42. We're going to read just the first nine verses. And, um, and then we're going to pray and we're going to look at this text together. So this is the word of God. Behold my servant whom I uphold. My chosen, and whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint. Or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and, the new, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Now, let's pray together. Father, your word is a treasure to our souls. It's a treasure to our souls because, Lord, you open our eyes to behold your glory and your majesty and the beauty of you as our Father, of your Son, Jesus Christ, the work of the Holy Spirit. You, you open our eyes to behold the beauty of the triune God. You make us to see, Lord, how desperate we are for a Savior and how richly you have provided the very one we need. God, I am grateful to you for the way that you have just entrusted to your people this word. And I pray, Lord God, as we feast upon it tonight, that you will enable me by the unction of your spirit, Lord, to teach this text properly. And and that, Lord, our hearts together would be drawn out in wonder and amazement at you and, and just at your Sovereign goodness, um, thank you for providing uh, this time to get together and, and study your word. I pray, Lord, we'd, we'd be grateful for it. I pray we wouldn't take it for granted. I pray that, Father, it would be to us just a, a nourishment to our souls and an encouragement, Father God, in our walk. So thank you for this time. Thank you that, that, that you have given us um, this opportunity to see you in your holy word. So open our eyes, Father. Um, unstop our ears and make us to revel in the glory that is yours. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, tonight, beloved, we're coming to the first of four passages in the, the book of Isaiah that have, been come, come to, that have come to be called the servant songs. Now, here's the deal. No one knows if these songs were actually sung or not, but that's not the point. The point is, is that these passages focus our attention directly upon God's promised Messiah, on His chosen servant, 
on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's the deal, okay? In Isaiah, there are several references to servant or servants, um, and we've seen that, right? And we'll see it some more. We, we see that word servant or servants applied to Israel and Judah. We see it applied to the remnant. We see it applied to Isaiah, even the pagan king Cyrus, right? But what sets these passages apart is their singular focus upon this one whom God calls his chosen servant, the, upon the Messiah. And the description of the servant that we see here is such that there is no way that the scriptures could possibly be talking about anyone else but Christ. That's just the reality of it, right? And so here's the thing. There are four servant songs that are in Isaiah. The first one is in Isaiah 42, 1 through 9, that we're going to look at tonight. And then Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 6. And then chapter 50, verses 4 through 9. And then, of course, that, you know, <laughs> tremendous section of Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13 to 53, 12. But what makes, you know, him so glorious is that this chosen servant of the Lord is himself God's answer to the sin and the idolatry and the failure of the nation of Israel and of Judah to keep covenant with him. But also, he is the answer to the spiritual darkness and the depravity of the elect from all nations. Okay, He's both the perfect Israel. Okay, the perfect and always pleasing servant of Yahweh that the nation never really was, right? And he's also that perfect man, right, that Adam failed to be. Now, as it regards Israel, right, there had been several servants in her history, several great men, we might say, that God had sent forth, right, leaders and prophets and kings, but none of them, none of them were appointed to keep the covenant on behalf of covenant-breaking Israel, nor could they. I mean, they were, just, they were incapable of doing it, right? Because they're fallen men. All of these guys, like, for instance, Abraham or, or Joseph or Moses or David or Solomon or Elijah, even Isaiah, just to mention a handful, all of them fell short of what was required of the Messiah, right? They did so because they were mere men. What Israel needed was a Savior. What they needed was the chosen servant sent from God, who's God in human flesh, Right? who would be a prophet like Moses, but would be a far greater intercessor and mediator. One who would be a priest like Aaron, but from the royal order of Melchizedek, right? A king like David, but one who would be seated on an eternal throne and who would fulfill all that the covenant required. So he's the perfect servant of the Lord, the perfect answer to the needs of fallen mankind. And in this text... God sets forth the character and, 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 and the mission of this great servant and in addition adds his guarantee that his mission will be fully and completely accomplished. Okay, so first thing I want us to look at tonight is just the description that's given here of, of Yahweh's servant. And I just want us to start by looking at verse 1. God speaks, he says in verse 1, this is, man, this is a thick verse. Look what he says. He says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Now that, we could just do a whole sermon on that, right? We're not going to, but we could, all right? But there are several things that I want us to see here. First, several things that really stand out. The first thing I want us to do is to take notice of that expression, behold my servant, behold 
my servant. Look at my servant. Pay attention to my servant. Look at him, right? And the idea is this. It takes us right back to to, to chapter 41 and, and verse 29. Remember, look at it real quick, where he says, Speaking of the idols, God says, Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind, right? And so here's what God's doing. In a powerful contrast to those false gods, in a powerful contrast to the idols of the nations, He's saying, Take a look at my servant, because he is altogether different. He is altogether different. And He sets forth His servant, God does, as as the one who has the life and the power and the ability that those idols lack, right? God puts puts forth His servant and He is decidedly, by this description that we see, He is decidedly not like the dead idols of the nations. In fact, notice how the Lord describes His commitment to and His joy and His satisfaction in His servant. First of all, He says, He's the one who, whom I uphold, whom I uphold. What's that mean? Well, that word means it's, it's, it's the idea of, of both supporting and, and strengthening him in his mission. In other words, God will give him everything that he needs in order to, the, to accomplish the mission that God has assigned, okay? But even more than that, there's something else here that, that it's really important. The idea of that word uphold is that the Lord, that, that, that the Lord, you know, that this, I mean, I'm sorry, that this servant is the one whom the Lord has laid hold of in, in, in such a way that he will keep him for himself. Okay? In other words, nothing's going to overcome him. Nothing's going to keep him from accomplishing his purpose. Nothing's going to dis- derail his mission. He's not going to be like Israel and Judah. He's not going to go astray. Okay? He is going to actually accomplish everything that the Lord's given him to do. And then, moreover, he's the Lord's chosen one. Really, the idea in the Hebrew is that he is his choice one. He's his choice one. He's the one upon whom he has placed his everlasting love and his affection. He is his choice one. He stands out above all others. He is the special object like none other of his love. That's the idea there, okay? And his servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the one in whom the Father, in, in whom the Father's soul delights. I love that expression. That is a beautiful expression. You know, when you want to express to somebody your deep you know, love for them and, and your supreme pleasure and, and, and satisfaction in them. You might use that phrase like, you know what? You delight my soul, right? And it's the same idea here. The servant, you know, is, is so pleasing, so satisfying to, to, to Yahweh. He, he's been chosen for this mission specifically because he is pleasing to the Father in every way. And, and, and the contrast that's being developed here is that you know, there's, there's a very great difference between this chosen servant and the way in which Israel and Judah had been so displeasing to Yahweh. I mean, they'd been given everything, right? They'd been given such grace. They'd been given every gift they, they could possibly need, Right? And yet they had been exceedingly displeasing to the Lord, especially, especially in their covenant breaking, right? Especially in the way that they spurned the blessing and the kindness and the faithfulness of God. And instead they sought after the gods of the nations that were around them, right? 
They just, for all of God's investment in Israel, he never got a return. And then in order to fulfill this mission, right, Yahweh says, I have put my spirit upon him. And the idea is this, that, that, that God Almighty has bestowed his spirit upon the servant in a uniquely powerful and identifying way. In a way that's unmistakable. In a way that's inescapable. That he has granted the servant his spirit without measure. He's consecrated his servant to him in such a way that is unique from everyone else and in a way that is indisputable. In fact, I want us to take a moment here to just think about this, this phrase and about the depth and the breadth of this statement, I have put my spirit upon him. Because it's really big. It's, it's, it's something that we need to just stop and think about for a moment. And here's why, right? When we think about the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Obviously, what was required there was the mystery of the incarnation, right? He, the, the mystery of the incarnation where, you know, where the second member of the Trinity miraculously became flesh and blood, right? Like, I challenge you to, to explain that. Like, that, that is one of those things that, that there are things we know to be true about that incarnation, but it, you know, if we're honest, it's beyond our true full comprehension, isn't it? You know, here he is fully God and fully man at the same time without mingling or confusion of his divine and his human nature, right? Now, here's the thing. As Christians, right, we are often very defensive about safeguarding Christ's divine nature, right? And, and rightly so, right? We live in a world where there are continually shots taken at the divinity of Christ. But sometimes in doing that, we do that at the expense of giving full testimony to his human nature, right? And yet, Scripture testifies to the reality and the completeness of his human nature also. Think about this. In Christ's incarnation, right, he became totally dependent upon the Father. Totally. He became totally dependent. And, and, as, and as such, all of his ministry, right, was performed and it was carried out in the power of the Holy Spirit, right? Isaiah, in fact, mentions this earlier. He mentions it, remember, in Isaiah chapter 11 when he describes you know, Christ in this way. He says, And the Spirit of the Lord, this is Isaiah 11 too, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Right? And so, what we've got to remember here is that the third member of the Trinity was essential to the accomplishment of the mission of the second member of the Trinity. Okay? Just consider the works of the Holy Spirit in the life of Christ. Just think about them. You know, just his very conception was unique, right? And that the Holy Spirit supernaturally created a holy embryo within the Virgin Mary's womb, right? That's what it means that the Spirit of God overshadowed her, okay? He creates a holy embryo, right? And in so doing, the Holy Spirit supplies Jesus with all the potential endowments all the graces, all the gifts, all the capacities that would be required for the accomplishment of his mission, right? During the years of his growth to manhood, the Holy Spirit superintended his development at every point. Luke records for us, Luke 2, verse 40. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him, or the grace of God was upon him. In other words, that testifies to the fact 
that Christ's life bore the fullness of the fruit of the Spirit, right? At his baptism, the Holy Spirit descended upon him in a visible form, right? Now, not that Christ was bereft of the Holy Spirit before that. That's not the idea. But rather, it was to confirm and encourage the Lord Jesus as he began his public ministry and give testimony, you know, to his identity to the people that heard the voice from heaven saying with obvious approval, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, right? It was the Holy Spirit, you'll remember, okay, who led him into the wilderness in order to face testing at the hands of Satan. The Holy Spirit did that. And it was by the strength of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Word of God that Christ emerged as victor, right? When, when Adam in the garden had failed the test that would have confirmed his sonship, Jesus' trial in the wilderness was to confirm, in contrast to Adam, his true sonship, right? His preaching. The miracles that he performed, the prayer, his prayer, all carried out in the power of the Holy Spirit. Peter, in describing Christ's public ministry in Acts chapter 10 and verse 38, describes this, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Yeah, the Holy Spirit was with him. His death and his resurrection in cooperation with the Holy Spirit. Scripture testifies in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 14 how Christ, through the eternal Spirit, offered Himself without blemish to God. And then Romans 1 speaks of how He was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. What I'm trying to get at is this. There is a wealth of meaning in the Father's words, I have put my Spirit upon Him. So often, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is ignored in the work of Christ. But apart from the Holy Spirit, Christ's mission couldn't have been accomplished. And what was that mission? He says it right here at the end of verse 1. He will bring forth justice to the nations. That word that's translated as justice is used three times in the first four verses here, okay? Three times. So it's got to be important, right? Now, what does it mean? That's the question. The word, the Hebrew word mishpat, there are many different shades and nuances to that word. And the way that Isaiah employs the word is to describe nothing less than the effects of the salvation of God defined in its broadest sense. In other words, we're speaking here when we talk about justice, not only of the personal forgiveness of sins that is won by Christ in accordance with the justice of God, right? But we're talking here about the creation of a new humanity that functions in accordance with the design of the Lord. The Hebrew word there describes that which marks the kingdom and the reign of God. His life-giving order, right? Everything and all peoples functioning properly and beneficially according to God's creative and redemptive acts. The fullness of God's revelation to humanity expressed in perfect peace and perfect equity, right? It's a big word. And so, the servant's mission is nothing less than to put God's plans for His people into full effect. And to make the truth about the Lord, Israel's God, known everywhere. Especially the fact that He alone is sovereign creator and Lord of history, and that He is also author of salvation. That's the heart of that word, justice. And then, the Lord 
describes, Yahweh describes how the servant will accomplish his mission. Verses 2 through 4 go on to say this. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed. He will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Now, I want you to see what he's doing here, what the Lord is doing here. He, he, he's setting a contrast with, with, with Cyrus and with other military you know, kings and leaders and generals and stuff. He's not going to be that military general like Cyrus, right? He, his coming's not going to be with pomp and with pageantry, right? We know that. He comes in humility. But the idea of those phrases, cry aloud and lift up his voice and make it heard in the street, they were used in other places um, to describe a thunderbolt. Or a raging bull, you know, bull in a china shop kind of thing, okay? He's not going to assume the role of a military commander. He's not going to be a drill instructor, right? Instead, he's going to be meek. His divine power is going to be under divine control, right? His strength will not be human military prowess, but it will be in the power of the Spirit. And rather than coming to crush his adversaries or to subjugate people by force... He won't come to destroy, but in gentleness, he will minister to the needy, to the bruised reed, to the faint wick, right? That really well described the remnant, right? That was in Babylon in that day. That's exactly what they were. Man, they were bruised. They were battered. It describes us at the hands of sin, doesn't it? He's not going to, you know, he's not going to come to crush. The servant will come as a healer of broken lives. And in fact, he's going to undo all the horrendous and the degrading effects that sin has had on humanity. And he's going to restore to people their true freedom. Right. In our culture, we talk about freedom as, as you know, the freedom to really pursue ungodliness and wickedness. Right. That's what everybody's marching for their freedom to, to, to do ungodly things. Right. But the true freedom that, that Scripture speaks of is, is restoring people to their dignity as the sons and the daughters of God, right? The idea is that He's going to embody the truth and He's going to speak truth and love and He's going to deliver the broken by His own sacrifice and by His own suffering. And He's not going to grow discouraged or, 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 or grow faint in His ministry. I want you to see this because this is important. It, it points back actually to the words in verse 3. They're the same words that are used to speak of those that are, that are a bruised reed or a faintly burning wick. And the idea is this. He's going to suffer the things that crush and discourage and quench human lives. He's going to endure all of those things, but He's going to overcome them all. That's the idea here. He's going to triumph. He's going to succeed in establishing justice. He's not going to falter, not even for a moment. He will be a savior of strength and of power. He'll be a savior of stamina and courage. He's going to be successful and victorious and triumphant. And his mission will affect not only the elect of Israel, but the whole world. Right? The reference to the coastlands, right? The ends of the earth. They're going to wait for his law, right? A word that that encompasses so much, right? Not just the law of Moses like we often think of it, but they're going to wait for his law, his doctrine, his teaching, you know, his instruction. In other words, his gospel, right? And so when we look at this servant, his strength's going to be by the power, by, by the Spirit of God. His, the instrument of his rule is going to be the Word of God, and his manner is going to be gentle and gracious. 
And there is more than a hint in the opening line of verse 4 that his mission will involve him in personal suffering, right? Suffering the things that, that we suffer. But that, of course, is going to be more fully developed in Isaiah 53. But for now, I just, I just want us to see that this contrast between Cyrus and God's chosen servant really brings us back to the original recipients of this passage, right? The remnant in Babylon. They would need two kinds of deliverance. They would need to be released from physical captivity in Babylon, right? And God would use Cyrus to achieve that, right? A human instrument, a human servant. But they would also need to be released from the wages and the power of sin. And that could only be accomplished by someone who could heal their broken relationship with Yahweh. And that would be the servant of God, right? Then Isaiah records for us Yahweh's commissioning of His servant. Look, starting in verse 5. Thus says God the Lord. And I love that. Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in Darkness. I want you to see how the Lord begins this commissioning. He does it how? By appealing to Himself, to His power as the one who created all things, as the one who continues in His creative care and His power, as the one who gives life, both breath and spirit, both physical and spiritual life. He's the life giver, right? And it's because He's the creator of all things. And it's because He's the owner of all creation. And it's because He's the caregiver of all things. And it's because He's the one that can give life. It's because of that that He can give this commission to His servant. And we see the Father speaking directly to Him, directly to the Lord Jesus, commissioning Him to become the Savior of sinners. Look at the phrases that are used here. He says, I have called you in righteousness. I have called you. What that tells us, is that the servant is not proceeding on a mission that is self-initiated, right? He's called. He's he's proceeding on a mission that originates with God Himself. And this this mission, or this calling, I mean, is in righteousness. In other words, it is a commission at the right time, in the right place, for the right purposes to be accomplished in the right way. Okay, He says, I will take you by the hand and keep you. It's another promise that he will provide the strength necessary to accomplish everything that he has assigned to his servant. Then he says, I will give you as a covenant for the people. He's talking here about the remnant in Israel. In other words, he will be the very embodiment of the covenant that God had made with Israel. And he'll do what they could not, what they would not. He will embody everything that Israel should have been but was not. He would do all that they should have done but did not. And He will fulfill the covenant. He will fulfill the covenant. In Him are the blessings of the covenant of grace. Not only, though, for the remnant of Israel, but look at this. He will be a light for the nations, right? 
One of the defining characteristics of the Gentile nations was their deep darkness, right? The darkness in which they were, you know, entrapped. The darkness of idolatry. The darkness of of just wickedness and sin. The darkness that marked every step. Even what seemed to be wisdom in reality was darkness, right? But the servant will be light. He'll bring the truth. He'll be the dispeller of spiritual darkness that envelops the idolatrous nations. And for both of them, both for his people and for the nations, he'll open the eyes that are blind to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Blindness, right, we know, is a metaphor in Scripture for the spiritual insensitivity of Israel as well as the spiritual deadness of the Gentiles. It's only this servant that's able to bring them out of the dungeon of sin and take them out of the spiritual darkness that plagues them and bring them into the life-giving light of God. When I was studying this text, it's remarkable. I I hadn't thought about it, but it makes makes plain sense. I I was studying, you know, some of the older guys because those are the guys I like. And um, what, what got me was this. A lot of the Reformed theologians see in this, specifically one of the guys that talks about is Louis Burkhoff. He's, he's more recent. But he sees, they see in verses 6 and 7 a reference to the eternal covenant of redemption, to the pactum salutis, right? The inner Trinitarian covenant that was made before the ages existed in the councils of eternity. And they picture this commission, right, as being, giving, as been, as being given then. That's the idea. In fact, Thomas Boston observes this. He says, The covenant of redemption and the covenant of grace are not two distinct covenants, but one in the same covenant. Only in respect to Christ, it's called the covenant of redemption, for as much in it, he engaged to pay the price of our redemption redemption in accordance with the commissioning of the Lord. But in respect of us, it's the covenant of grace, for as much the whole of it is of free grace to us. God provides what we didn't ask for and what we could never provide on our own. And all this is an astonishing and a wonderful promise. But here's the question, right? I mean, it's easier for us on this side of the cross and knowing the Gospels, right? But, but how do we know that the servant of the Lord is going to be successful in this mission? How do we know? Like, how can we, how can we be certain that this, he's, he's not going to fail in his mission? That what the Lord says here is true. Well, we know because of Yahweh's guarantee. And he gives it to us in verses 8 and 9. Look at it. He says, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them. It takes us back again to Isaiah 41 and, and, and the Lord's contention with the idols, right? And he establishes the guarantee of his servant's success in the two things that differentiate him from the worthless idols by which Israel and Judah and the world had been seduced. So what are those two things? Well, first, it's the, his glory in his name. Yahweh, right? I am. The I am that I am. That covenant name that he spoke to Moses and to which the Lord gave definition. You'll remember when he passed by Moses and, and held him in the cleft of the rock and he said this, The Lord, 
the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. That's a pretty awesome name. And the Lord is jealous for the glory of His name, and He's not going to suffer it to be given to any mere idol. He will uphold His glory as God through His chosen servant. And then second, by His supremacy as the one who is in sovereign control of the present, of the past, and through His prophets reveals the future. He's the one, right? This is the contrast, the great contrast of the idols. He's the one who is in sovereign control of all of human history, who directs it according to his decree and to his will, who is able to declare with precision beforehand everything that has taken place in human history, right, the former things, proving therefore his supremacy and his majesty. But more than that, he's the one who declares the new things, right? And on the basis of his power to declare the former things, he says he could declare these new things, you know, and, 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 and describe them before they ever spring forth, right? Both the physical deliverance of the nation from the clutches of Babylon and also the spiritual rescue of sinners and the renewal of all things, even unto a new heavens and a new earth through his appointed chosen servant. And that sets him apart from all the no-gods of the nations. Here's the point. This servant song, man, it is good news, isn't it? To the elect of every nation. But it was good news, get this now, to the remnant in Israel first of all. God's healing, saving work through His servant would begin with them and then overflow to a waiting and a needy world, right? In fact, Paul told us the same, didn't he? Didn't he in Romans chapter 1 verse 16 when he says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew, what? First. And also to the Greek. So, what, what should be our response to the glorious truth of God's sovereign work to provide His chosen servant? I just want to give you a few things to consider and then I'll open it up to you for anything you might you know, want to add as far as how you respond to this. First thing I would say is this. This truth must serve to call us to repentance, to continuing repentance and faith in the servant of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, right? I mean, we need a Savior. We need a shepherd. We need somebody to do for us what we would not do, what we could not do, right? And God has provided His servant to be just that. He is perfect in every way. You don't need to go beyond the chosen servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, to find salvation anywhere else. Our trust and our devotion to Him should be steadfast and ever-growing, right? Then second, this text calls us to trust in the promises of God, right? I mean, think about this. If you're one of these Babylonian, one of the the remnant in in the Babylonian exile, where else do you have to turn, right? But the promises of the Lord, 
I think about, you know, what happened again after the, the, the feeding of the 5,000 when Jesus is talking about, you know, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood, right? And obviously he's not speaking literally. He's talking in, in a metaphor regarding faith. But, you know, at that point, oh, this is too hard to hear. And many of his disciples left him, right? And he says to Peter, you guys going to go too? You guys going away? What are you going to do? And, and, and he says to him, to, hell, to whom else can we go? We know and we have come to believe that you have the words of life. Where else can we go? Beloved, whatever we face, whatever trials come, and we will face trials, whatever hardships we endure, we know God is trustworthy. And if He provided for our greatest need in Christ, right, then there's no good thing that He'll withhold from His people. God can be trusted. He's got a track record, right? A perfect one. Third, This text, I think, calls us to reverent fear. Again, fear of the Lord is one of those things that's fallen, you know, it's become passe in the church, but how much should we be in awe of the one who makes all things and who directs all things according to the counsel of his will and upholds the universe by the word of his power and directs all things according to his purpose? Like, God is is awesome, right? And there ought to be a reverential fear in our hearts for a God who can do all things. I mean, my dogs don't even listen to my words, right? I mean, you want to talk about how, like, frail I am? I mean, I have the power of life and death over those dogs. They don't listen, right? The infinite resources of God's power. Listen, they are for those who fear him, not against them, not against us. And so we, we may fear the Lord with a childlike confidence in our Heavenly Father. Right? Fourth, I think this text calls us to humble praise. To humble praise, right? We should sing unto the Lord and make a joyful noise because He's a good, great God and a great King above all gods who holds the earth and all who inhabit it in His hands. Right? When we look at this text, it displays God's power, you know, His generosity and His grace to provide His chosen servant, the greatness of that servant, in order to awaken our adoration and our praise for His excellent and His glorious greatness. The truth is this. Proud sinners do not stoop to praise God. But, buddy, the redeemed ought to gladly extol His excellencies. Right? Nobody should have to say to us, you need to worship God. Right? Isn't that true? Although I just did. And then fifth, this text ought to call us to have hope for the salvation of others. Right? We all know people that are in darkness. Deep, deep darkness. And when we consider the hardness of men's hearts and their slavish attachment to the world and, you know, the darkness that, that, that encompasses them, it's easy to despair of people's salvation, isn't it? Now you look at it and you go, this seems utterly impossible. Well, for man, what? It is. But with God, what? All things are possible, right? God's the God of infinite power. Infinite power. And so our hope is not to try to persuade others. Our hope is that God regenerates hard hearts and the chosen servant of God shines the light of the truth upon those people. So that the word of God from our lips is persuasive. 
and when God's power is applied to the salvation of sinners. Beloved, he can't be resisted. So maybe the sixth thing I would say is, this text ought to encourage us to prayer. What a great God we call upon when we pray. Beyond our ability to even begin to fully understand. I'm reading an excellent book right now. It's called Reformed Systematic Theology by Joel Beakey. It's a four-volume set, and each volume is like 1,100 pages. It's only like 800 pages in. Here's what I have discovered. Here's what I've discovered. All that I thought about, that I, knew, I thought I knew about God, is not even the half of it. If you're a person who reads tomes like that, I mean, and it is huge. Like you can use this to kill a small animal. <laughs> it's huge. I highly, highly, highly recommend it. You know, it's, 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 it's not easy reading, but it's good reading. And just the, just, I, will, I don't know if I've said this before, but just the prologamena, the first things, the first words, and the doctrine of God that's in the first volume. 1,100 pages on that, right? Worth its weight in gold. Not just because Joel Beakey is an, an incredibly gifted teacher, because he is. But because of the theologians, the faithful theologians in history, and the objections and stuff that he deals with, and how he deals with them entirely from Scripture, and in such a powerful and irrefutable way, like I'm telling you, everybody ought to have this in your library. Okay? It'll cost a little. But it's worth it. Anyways, that was just a free plug for um, Joel Beakey's book. He's wor- the, the fourth volume's not even done yet. They're still writing the fourth volume, you know. And I'm, I'm anxious to get it and put it on my shelf, even though I probably won't get to it for like six months or so. But oh, good. Hey, any other thoughts about how we ought to respond to this text? Anybody? Yes, ma'am. Um, I was just thinking about um, how many messianic te- texts there are and how God was under no obligation to give anyone a heads up. <laughs> and there's so much that... That's a good, that's a good point. You know, like, yeah. There's so much that we can look at and be like, just evidence of a Savior and how we know that Jesus is who he said he is. Yeah. And... There was no obligation for God to be like, well, let me paint a picture for you and give you a checklist. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, like, I think it it would behoove us to think about everything that we've been given from God as grace. Like, all of it. Like, nothing, God was not obligated to give fallen sinners a thing, except hell. I was thinking about that when you were saying in the very beginning, like, here they're in this terrible spot of emergency. And so many times in our in our home, we say, "Your emergency is not my problem." <laughs> Do we say that in our home? Something like that. Lack of, rep- rep- 
a lack of your lack of preparation does not necessitate a mercy on my behalf. Yeah, okay. Yeah. But in contrast, God assumes the problem like it is the answer. Yes. How gracious. Oh yeah. Yeah, think about that. To get, I mean, it's just so awesome to see the chosen servant who embodies the covenant, embodies everything that Israel was to be, that Judah was to be, and not to leave the Gentiles out, everything that Adam should have been and wasn't. Like, it's really awesome. It is an awesome, breathtaking, humbling picture. Right? And so that's why I think it's such foolishness when we, when we question God and question His ways and question His wisdom, like, Oh, man, like you're out of your lane, bro. Like get back in your lane fast. You know, that's like driving, you know, breakneck speed down a one way street the wrong way. You know, nothing good comes out of that. Nothing at all. Yeah, Jesse. I was thinking about kind of the content of uh, what he's going to do in this passage. And then particularly Isaiah 61... And how, and, and it always brings me back to this incredible passage in Luke, you know, Nazareth. Yeah, yeah, oh, absolutely. He goes into the synagogue and they give him the book of Isaiah. And he says, uh, How perfect that it's in Isaiah, right? I mean, that's the thing. Like, on that day, yeah. they're in Isaiah. Oh, yeah. here you go. And then he opens <laughs> the book and he found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to, listen to the phrase, to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captive, Amen. and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he sits down, and every eye on him, and he says, this day is the scripture fulfilled in your ears. Yeah. I mean, that's mind-blowing. Yeah, yeah. And their reaction is equally mind-blowing, right? Oh, let's get them up to the cliff of the hill and throw them off, shall we? You know? <laughs> that's a great response to the chosen servant of God, right? I mean, it, yeah, it's, it's remarkable. And I love, like, you know, I, it's funny. You know, you got those, you have these, and I, I hesitate to even call them scholars. I'll call them, I'll call them, um, the blind leading the blind. Uh, guys that will say, well, clearly, um, the servants, you know, the servant, these servant passages are, are not speaking of, of Jesus, right? Supposedly Christian scholars, right? And then you go to Luke, or you go to Matthew, for instance. I think it's chapter 10 where he, where he actually quotes from this text, you know, and says, yeah, that he applies it to Jesus. It's like, what book are you reading, man? Like, really, what book are you reading? Maybe, maybe people got a hold of like the Thomas Jefferson Bible. I don't know. But man, oh man. All right, let's pray. And then, we'll, uh, and then we'll, we'll split up and we'll do some praying. John, will you pray for us? Father God, it is only by your mercy that we are saved. It is only by your, your grace that we even have the ability to understand this message, Lord. It's not complicated, but there are so many people who look at this as foolishness. God, I'm so thankful that you've chosen us, chosen your people to be the faithful few. God, and I thank you that we have a mission. Lord, I thank you that we have a mission. I thank you that we have a gospel to share, have a gospel to spread. It's not ours, it's yours. And I thank you for 
the Holy Spirit that you've given to us to empower us to do these things, to live in a way that is upright, to live in a way that glorifies you, to live in a way that is noble. God, everything that we have truly is a gift. And everything that you offer us is far greater than condemnation and wrath and hell forever, God. You save us from yourself. And I'm so thankful. So Lord, I pray that in response, we would seek to glorify you through the way that we live, through the things that we talk about, through the ways that we entertain ourselves, God, that we would truly seek to make your kingdom, to expand your kingdom, Lord, and to see the gospel come to completion, come to full effect on this earth, Lord, to see you return. Lord, that is our mission. So I pray that we would do that with eagerness and with passion, Lord, and with the right heart. I just thank you for this time. I thank you for revealing to us Christ in Scripture before He was even there historically, Lord. You you make it so evident, the deity of Christ, the fullness of the deity of Christ. Lord, and it is in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Amen.